customers to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at mainecf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, we're talking trash, marine debris specifically. From the plastic bags washed up on the beach to microplastics, which are unseen to the naked eye, but very much in our waters, we're going to be talking about marine debris. We'll talk about sources, about consequences, and about solutions to the marine debris problem. My guests in the studio today are Brian Markarell, who's the program director at the Maine Island Trail Association. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Great. And my other guest is Abby Barrows, who is the Coastal Monitoring Coordinator with the Marine and Environmental Research Institute in Blue Hill. And she's also um, with Adventurers and Scientists for Conservation, and she'll tell us all about that. Hi, Abby. Welcome. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Great. So um, it's great to have you both on the show um, and to learn a little bit about what the trash issues are in our ocean. Um, but before we jump into our topic at hand, why don't you guys share a little bit about who you are and the organizations, what the organizations that you represent do. So Brian, let's talk with you first. Tell us a little bit about the Main Island Trail. Sure. Uh, the Main Island Trail is um, a water trail that spans the entire coast of Maine, about 350 miles, connects over 200 island and mainland sites that are accessible by small boat. And my organization, it's a small nonprofit based in Portland, the Maine Island Trail Association, we maintain the water trail. And uh, we don't own any of the sites or islands that are part of the trail. It's all based on handshake agreements, which is kind of a, a neat Maine thing. And um, we work to mobilize volunteers to look after the islands, uh, maintain the trails and the campsites, keep the shorelines clean, and ensure that access continues for uh, the next generation. That's great. Thanks, Brian. It's good to have you on the show. And Abby, tell us a little bit about um, Marine and Environmental Research Institute and your other affiliations. All right. Um, the Marine and Environmental Research Institute is based in Blue Hill, and I'm the Coastal Monitoring Coordinator. We focus a lot on water quality um, in the Blue Hill and Penobscot Bay areas and um, also help with marine mammal stranding and looking at toxins in seals and also in firefighters. So we sort of have a human and marine connection. Great. 
that sounds great. And you also, for the um, context of our conversations today on marine debris, you have an affiliation with an organization that's not based in Maine, but that does work all over the world. Tell us a little bit about Adventures and Scientists for Conservation. Yes, they are based in Bozeman, Montana, um, and I'm the principal investigator on their global uh, microplastics project. So the adventurers all over the world take samples for me in areas that as a scientist I would never have access to, um, ship them to me to my lab in Stonington, and I process these water samples and look for plastics in both marine and fresh water all over the world. That's great. That sounds like a really interesting approach to get information from the field, and I'm looking forward to talking more about it. Um, so let's start by sort of framing the problem. What is the marine debris problem out there? What, what, are, what is marine debris? What, what, are, what are we seeing? Let's start with, I know that, so today we're going to be talking about sort of two different scales, I think, kind of the big um, scale where we see trash on the shore and we wonder where it comes from and what can we do about it. And then we're going to talk about this whole other realm, which is for simplistic terms, trash that we can't see. Um, so let's kind of try to define those. So Brian, tell us a little bit about wh how you guys define the marine debris issue in your work at MIDA. MIDA, by the way, is the Maine Island Trail Association. Sure. Yeah, we, we kind of got into the marine debris business a little bit by accident. We're, we're in the island stewardship business. We maintain a water trail, and part of island stewardship is um, keeping shorelines clean. And most of what most of the debris that we find on the shores of these islands is marine debris. It's it's born, it's generated from the ocean. It washes ashore. It's not stuff that people are leaving behind on the islands, uh, by and large. So we uh, we spend a lot of time sort of sweeping the shoreline year after year, every spring and fall, to um, to get the stuff out of the. What's neat about the islands is that they sort of they act as catchers' mitts. They kind of capture marine debris. Large. I'm talking about sort of macro scale marine okay. debris, um, things like, you know, a plastic bottle or a, or a buoy that's um, come loose. And they sort of catch on the shores of these islands, and so we mobilize volunteers to get those off of the island shorelines, but also out of the water column, in effect. So it's an, it's an easy way to do that. It's much easier than going around with a, uh, a net trying to scoop them out of the ocean. So the, the islands, I, I love that. That way you defined it sort of act as a catcher's mitt. So because of the currents and the way that the water moves out there, the, the trash is thrown up on island shorelines. Right, right. And so with each and every tide that comes and goes, um, more marine debris sadly comes ashore. And so um, after a winter's worth of storms, uh, we go out in the spring and we do a big shoreline cleanup and we're able to capture a lot of stuff that's been kind of um, tossed up and caught on the rocks there. And we'll get that out of the out of the water. Um, and so the boating season, um, over the course of the boating season, recreational users and volunteers can then sort of pick up what comes ashore over the course of the season as well. So we sort of attack it um, on, on two different fronts there. Great, great. And I know that you've been tracking um, sort of changes and trends and everything, and we'll we'll dive into those in a few minutes. Um, let's uh, let's uh, sort of look at what the marine debris is at the issue what it is at the other end of the spectrum, the little tiny things that we don't see. Tell us a little bit about what m marine debris means at the microscopic level, Abby. All right. Well, um, I actually try to stay away from the word debris because I feel like it sort of softens the issue. Okay. Because what we're really dealing with is plastic. 
Um, 95% of the trash in the ocean is plastic. And I think when people hear debris, you're like, oh, logs and other organic things that will break down. Um, So I try to say plastic pollution because that's really what we're dealing with. And especially with the microplastics, um, that is what I'm seeing. Um, So microplastics are defined as pieces of plastic that are less than five millimeters in size. And they are petroleum-based. They're made from oil. They are not biodegradable. They might break down um, into smaller and smaller pieces, but they never go away. So we have um, primary types of microplastics. So nurdles, these little pre-production pellets that are melted down to make larger pieces of plastic. Um, And then there's microbeads, which are also, um, I know we'll talk about um, in a moment, but um, are added into personal care products as an exfoliant. And then we have secondary microplastics. So um, the things that Brian were, was talking about, plastic bottles and bags that break down into smaller and smaller pieces and eventually become microplastics. So there's a pretty clear connection between the kinds of work that you're both involved in related to, and I'm going to try to use the right word, plastic instead of debris, because your point is really a good one. Um, so if Brian's volunteers are not out scouring the shores every year, um, there's a lot more of the microspo- microscopic plastic left Yes. In the ocean column. Yes. Right. And we see that even on the islands. The stuff, if if a new island becomes part of the trail and we go out and clean it for the first time, uh, a lot of what we find is embedded plastic that's sort of up in the vegetation. And that stuff usually is so brittle mm-hmm. that by the time we go to reach and pick it up, it's disintegrating in our hands. Um, it's really disheartening. Yeah. The, the larger plastics, uh, especially here in Maine, um, get broken down into smaller pieces. They're not going away by that um, strong UV rays in the summer, ice and the wave action, um, very quickly those larger pieces shatter and become very hard to pick up and become a real issue as microplastics in the marine environment. So the um, the larger plastic, we've probably all heard the stories of the sea turtles who accidentally you know, gulp down plastic bags because they think it's their prey, jellyfish, that sort of thing. Um, help us understand um, w- you know, so it keeps breaking down, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and so I guess the big question is, so why does it, why do we care if it's still in the environment at that microscopic level? Um, a few different reasons. Um, one, the smaller pieces of plastic are then much more available to all of the marine life to consume because they don't see it or as a filter feeder or um, so muscles and clams and things like that that are just pumping water through their bodies and usually feeding on phytoplankton and zooplankton, which are the same size as microplastics. Uh-huh. Um, also, uh, it can still cause issues um, internally. It can cause damage and blockages within the animals. And the biggest piece that um, is still being understood is plastics are made with um, hazardous chemicals um, and they, it's found that they leach these chemicals out into the environment, so BPA and things like that, plasticizers, phthalates, um, but they also absorb any sort of ambient toxic chemical in the uh, surrounding environment. So in the ocean, we still have a lot of DDT, PCBs, flame mm-hmm. retardants, all of these chemicals are sort of floating out there in the environment. And these tiny pieces of microplastic acts, act as a sponge. They absorb those Um, toxins out of the marine environment and become extremely highly concentrated with these toxins. And this is a real issue when they are ingested by marine life. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
So still trying to, to sort of wrap our brain around what the issue is, um, again, sort of the things that we hear in the popular media. You know, we probably have all heard those stories about the gigantic gyre out in the Pacific Ocean, sort of gyre that's, what, two times the size of Texas, of just plastic sort of floating around out there. Um, it's sort of hard to grasp that much trash, you know, in one area. Um, how does that compare to what you guys are seeing? What's sort of the big picture status of plastics and other kinds of trash in our ocean here on the coast of Maine? Well, we've, MIDA has been doing cleanups for, well, almost 30 years now, and uh, we have not seen a reduction in the amount of trash, you know, that we're bringing in every spring and fall. Um, we are, uh, we are noticing different types of things we're picking up and just sort of uh-huh. ane- anecdotally, like, you know, five hour energy, hmm. little five hour energy bottles. We seem to be finding a lot more of those these days and fewer wow. coffee cups. Uh, so yeah, I mean, just little trends like that, but, um, the cultural dimensions are fascinating. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but no, even, I mean, what we do find though, is once we go out and clean an island for the first time or for the first time in a long time. After that, it's pretty much just maintenance. It's pretty much just finding things that have washed ashore over that the, the, the prior boating season, you know, once we've got all the embedded stuff out. Um, so that's why sort of annual maintenance is uh, really helpful and important. And so you just said that you've been doing this for 30 years as an organization, and and every year you're still finding sort of stable levels of the same amount of trash that you've been finding we just yeah i'll I'll, just to give you paint a picture um this so we do a series of cleanups in the spring and in the fall we do basically one in each bay that the main island trail passes through casco bay muscungus bay penobscot bay and further down east we did eight total cleanup days last year or this this year 2015 130 volunteers cleaned 54 islands and what we found was 80 cubic yards of stuff, which is a number that doesn't mean anything to me. So let me put it another way. Um, Imagine a dump truck came to your house and tipped its uh, bed and emptied an entire dump truck load of trash in your front yard. And then seven more dump trucks came behind it and did the same thing. That's eight dump truck loads of trash just from these 50 islands, which are getting cleaned pretty much every year. Wow. 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 That's, That's a great visual. A disheartening visual, but a great visual. <laughs> um, and then uh, from the, the microscopic level, what's sort of the status of what we're seeing on the coast, or not seeing, but exists in our water column? Um, the issue with microplastics is, is, you know, it's not the macroplastics that you can um, have these great, amazing numbers of tonnage of plastics um, in the oceans, but there are some estimates um, great. for microplastics um, and it's estimated that there's around five trillion pieces of plastic debris um, on the uh, surface of the ocean. Five trillion pieces it, per square mile. Per square <laughs> per square <Wow>. mile. <laughs> wow. Um, yep. And uh, and this is not th- looking at the water column and um, the deep ocean. So uh, th- there was a. Uh, it, worldwide study looking at um, plastic concentrations in the surface, and this is some of the numbers that they came up with. So this is a huge issue, but we just don't see it. You look out and you see these beautiful 
rolling blue waves and um, you don't yeah. think about the quantity of microplastics in the water. And locally, we're finding just from our study um, in Blue Hill Bay, around 17 pieces of microplastics per liter of seawater where we've, we've been sampling. So think of a Coke bottle. You know, that's uh-huh. that, the volume of water in there. And that's 17 little pieces of plastic and one liter of randomly um, sampled water. In Blue Hill Bay? In Blue Hill Bay. Okay. And at our wastewater treatment plant outfall sites, um, we have much higher amounts of plastic. Okay. And and we'll get into that in, in a little bit. Um, so when you mentioned the sort of staggering statistic of some trillions in the... Mo- t- tell us that statistic again. Uh, estimated over 5 trillion pieces of plastic in a, a square mile. Okay. And how deep is that? Um, I think that's a a meter deep. Okay. So that doesn't count everything that's below a meter or what's um, sort of settled out at the bottom of the ocean. And then it also doesn't count, if I'm understanding this correctly, what is already within the tissue of animals that may have consumed. Correct. And it's not just um, animals living in the ocean, it's animals living on the ocean, so seabirds and things like that. Uh, Right. Of course, the seabird connection. Yeah. Okay. Um, So... So that's just an unbelievable amount of trash, whether it's the big stuff you can see um, or the little microscopic stuff that you can't see. So tell us a little bit more about how um, you guys at Mary, so Mary is Maine, is Marine and Environmental Research Institute based in Blue Hill. Um, you guys have been monitoring for microplastics. Tell us a little bit about how you're doing that and, and a little more about what you're finding. All right. Well, we started a pilot study um, three, four years ago now. Um, sampling different water in different ways. So we tried um, using a Neuston net, which is basically a large phytoplankton net, um, and dragging that along the surface of the ocean. And we that's a common way that people sample plastics all over the world, but we ran into some issues with it in terms of contamination. The net you're using is plastic, um, and constantly in this line of work, you need to be aware of how you as a scientist is affecting the, uh-huh. the sample. Um, and it's cumbersome. You bring it up on the boat and you, if you want to rinse it down, you're using a hose that is made out of plastic. Um, and so there's all these components that potentially you could be contaminating the sample. So we stopped using the Neuston tow net. We also did a sediment sampling, um, basically digging um, a square foot of uh, intertidal sediment and processing it in the lab using um, hypersaline solution to try to float plastics out. And as you can imagine, that got very messy <laughs> and very, uh, very labor and time consuming. Um, and then we also did a whole water technique, um, which is basically taking a glass liter jar and scooping, after rinsing it out three times, scooping um, a liter of surface water and litting it and bringing it back to the lab and using a very simple vacuum pump filtration process. So you have this glassware, you have a filter, you pour the water in the top, turn on a vacuum pump, and it sucks the water over this filter. And then you have this filter that um, has left behind, uh, the water has left behind anything of interest on that filter. You let it dry out and then look at the contents under the microscope. So that's a lot of different techniques. And it's fascinating to think about, um, you know, that Plastic is so ubiquitous in the way that we function every day that that might impact our knowledge of what we're actually seeing. Just thinking of your 
your hose mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU. This is Coastal Conversations. And today we are talking about trash, um, marine debris, and plastic pollution in the ocean. And my guests are Brian Markrell from the Main Island Trail Association, also known as MIDA, and Abby Barrows from the Marine and Environmental Research Institute, also known as Mary. Um, and um, so, so back to the big level, um, Brian, so you t- the, the cultural connection is really interesting in terms of the transition or the changes and what you're seeing coming up. Tell us a little bit about some of the trends over the 30 years that you guys have been doing this, um, sort of what kinds of things that you're seeing, crazy weird things that you guys have pulled in that you just never would have expected. Sometimes you hear stories of, you know, refrigerators, that sort of stuff. Um, what, what have you found? We found a refrigerator. You, yeah, maybe that, I heard that story from yeah, you guys. Yeah, that, um, yeah, it's not something you and, – and this definitely floated ashore. It was not on the beach one day, and it was on the beach the next. It, it was really strange. That's one of the weirder ones we found. We found surfboards. We found um, – I found – I plucked out of the water, actually, a, uh, a recycling bin that on the side it said City of Boston recycling program on it. Wow. This was off of Cape Elizabeth, of all places. Um, we found a raft of tires – all sort of like this was 70, 80 tires all chained together uh, with some heavy gauge metal chain washed ashore on an island. Uh, that took a collaborative effort wow. between MIDA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and the state to get those off of there. Was it floating or it was beached? It was, it was ashore. It was when, ashore. Yeah, when wow. we saw it. But uh, yeah. Really, How did you remove that? Um, we had a volunteer with a cutting torch that had to cut okay. the cut the chain, and then we rolled the uh, the tires down one at a time and boated them back to shore. So we, yeah, there's there's some odd stuff, but by and large, um, most of what we find is a byproduct of having an active fishing industry here in Maine. We find a lot of things uh, like a lot of rope, bait bags. Um, foam buoys or pieces of foam buoys, foam dock pieces, um, lobster claw bands, um, strapping, the plastic strapping that goes around, things that you ship, um, things like that. Um, and a lot of it is is incidental. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, some of it winds up in the ocean by accident. Um, I'm sure not all of it winds up in the ocean by accident, but a lot of what we find is, ac- is incidental. Uh, that makes up easily three quarters of the stuff that we bring in. And so when you say that that stuff is incidental, does that mean, for example, a storm comes up and and rips some traps, you know, rips the lines off the traps and then a whole mess of buoys get entangled and the line get entangled and that ends up on the shore, that that sort of thing? That sort of thing, or a boat propeller might cut a cut a line and the buoy washes ashore or or stuff like okay. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. or the, the, the little plastic trap doors on the lobster traps often break break loose and those float ashore uh-huh. that sort of stuff yeah. yeah yeah and what other kinds of things are you seeing so that's on the sort of that's the bulk of what we see uh-huh. as far as um sort of your everyday kind of consumer plastic goes we do find plastic bottles um mylar balloons is another uh-huh. one we find a lot of which is really sad um a lot of people don't think about what happens when you let a balloon go you know we they don't just disappear they they wind up somewhere and it's usually in a body of water um right and i mean i remember as a as an elementary school student we did a class project where we went out and we wrote our names and maybe the school's address on it and we let these 
tied it to a balloon and let it go with the idea that somebody might find it and write back and become a pen pal. Um, but you know, that was, I'm dating myself. That was a few decades ago, but I hope, I hope we don't do that with our school children anymore, but that's the sort of thing, you know, I mean, everybody is kind of wowed by a balloon floating off into the sky, but, uh, but they usually wind up somewhere. Um, we found in 2007, we, we did a study where we, we don't often catalog the trash that we find. Um, we're, we're more in the business of just removing it. Um, but we did. We got a small grant from the Maine Coastal Program to to study, you know, per, put percentages to what we were finding. And uh, and in 07, and one particular study, we we went to four large islands and documented every piece of trash that we picked mm. up using data cards that were provided by the Ocean Conservancy. And uh, as part of this particular cleanup on four islands, we found 44 balloons. Wow! Just just in that one. One study. And balloons are often mistaken as food by turtles and a lot of the marine mammals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at the, uh, let's talk a little bit about sources of microscopic trash. So things break down. But you mentioned earlier um, the exfoliating beads, and I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but think, you know, fibers that come off of clothing. Tell us a little bit about the, the sources of microplastics. Mm. So, if in the news um, recently, there's been a lot of publicity on microbeads, and California actually just banned um, the sale of micro products containing microbeads um, yesterday. Wow, <laughs> which I think is great news. Yeah, um, and their bill is uh, a little bit uh, stricter than a lot of the other bills um, that have passed in the states. We've had nine states that have banned microbeads, and Maine is among them. Okay, um, and actually, great. Our, our research at Mary helped. Um, we testi- testified in the state house um, last February to help push this ban through in Maine, um, and so by 2020, there will no longer be any. Um, uh, pharmaceuticals or personal care products sold um, in Maine that contain microbeads. Wow, that's great. So tell us, what is a microbead? Microbead is sort of what it sounds like. It's a small little round piece of plastic that is usually polypropylene or polyethylene, and you can actually find that in the ingredients if you look Oh, you can look okay. in personal care products um, and also in toothpaste and crest. That's a t- different types of crest toothpa- toothpaste contain microbeads. Okay. Um, they're added in as a abrasive, as something to sort of help um, clear off your dead skin or help uh, make your teeth look whiter. Uh-huh. But they're plastic, and we put them, wash them just right down our drain. And um, those pe- microbeads make their way into the marine and freshwater environments in extremely large quantities. Okay. Okay. So the piece that I think is confusing, I know it's a little bit confusing for me, is that... Um, in terms of the microplastics, you you being the general you, you think that, you know, you do your dishes or you brush your teeth or you do your laundry and it's going to go through a system, especially if you're in a village where, you know, or a town where everything's going through a municipal wastewater treatment plant. Um, but it seems like there's a disconnect there. Things you know, are getting through. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, throughout the throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, we realize that we do not have the systems in place in our wastewater treatment facilities to capture any of these microplastics. Um, what we're dealing with is just really small pieces of plastic. Um, we don't have filters that capture them, whether it be from um, what we wash down our drains for the microbeads or a huge contributor. Um, and I think it might may rival um, some of the... Uh, 
larger macro plastics breaking down is microfibers. So it's a type of microplastic, and it's the fibers from synthetic clothing. So think of your favorite yoga pants or your running shorts or your beloved polar fleece. Yeah, which, which two out of three of us in the studio are currently wearing, just in full disclosure. I'm I'd be not. one of them. Guilty. Um, Every time you wash those, um, they can shed thousands of pieces of plastic. Every um, time you wash every them. Every time you wash them. Wow. And that, those microfibers make their way into our marine and freshwater systems. It is, the research is out there. It shows this is what's happening. Um, even if you're on a septic, so if you're not on town, the town system, what do you think happens to that septic tank? You have a leach field, so some of that might be leaching out directly into the um, surrounding environment around your house, but they pump, you get your septic tank pumped and that's sprayed. And all of those plastics eventually um, make their way into our water systems. Right. Wow. So um, is there, you know, the, the big question is always who's responsible and clearly we're all responsible. Is there a role for um, the manufacturers of some of these products um, to sort of do some research to figure out how to how can they create products that aren't gonna I don't know what the right word is shed, shed mm-hmm. right okay yeah, yeah. Um, definitely but a lot of that has to be driven by the consumer if um, the consumer isn't making those choices with their wallet the producers aren't going to make any changes so there have been some clothing companies that are um, spending some time focusing on this trying to design a more robust type of synthetic fiber for uh, such as in Patagonia. Um, for their fleeces and other synthetic clothing that people really love. Um, So there's definitely some designing that can happen around that. But I think that moving towards natural fibers and and, um, companies such as Ibex and Icebreaker and these companies that focus on wool, using wool, Uh um, and sort of just making wool more contendable to polar fleece um, as an outdoor uh, jacket and grab and go type of thing. Um, so I think moving towards natural fibers, um, some of these larger companies are considering that and also just trying to design stronger plastics, which has its own suite of issues. Right, right. This feels like a, a, a just a very pertinent thing for us in Maine to think about. You know, we are in the land of L.L. Bean. We're in the land of so many different outdoor equipment companies, not to name specific names or blame, but we all we all wear it. We all mm-hmm. every day. Um, yeah. Um, so for folks who are just tuning in, you're listening to WERU. This is Coastal Conversations, and we're talking trash today, trash in the ocean. Um, my guests are Abby Barrows of the Marine and Environmental Research Institute, and uh, we'll also learn in a few minutes about some of her other work. And we're talking with Brian Markarell of the Maine Island Trail Association. And uh, we'd like to open it up for your um, calls with your observations and what you're seeing out there in the ocean and any thoughts or questions that you might have for our guests. The number here at WERU is 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. So let's um, come back for a minute. Um, We talked about um, the fact that the coast of Maine is so, um, th- that the fishing industry is a really big part of our working waterfront here on the coast of Maine and that a 
pretty sizable proportion of what your volunteers, Brian, are seeing and bringing in um, is fishing industry stuff. So the part that is, I think, another one that's a little confusing for me is that there are, um, is in terms of how you deal with these questions, because there are perfectly legitimate regulations, right? I can't go and pick up fishing gear that I see on the shore because it's not my property. It belongs to somebody else. So what are some of the efforts that have happened and that you guys have been involved in to kind of help close the loop with um, how to deal with, as you call the incidentals that end up on the shore? It's nobody's sort of intentional fault to throw some traps up on the shore. How do do we deal with that? What are some of the great efforts that have happened um, to try to help with this issue? And, And who are some of the fishermen that have been involved? I know there's been a lot of talk within the fishing industry about how to handle this problem. Yeah, and um, and I'm glad you, you mentioned it because I should clarify that generally we're not, when we're out cleaning, we're not touching fishing gear. We're, we're picking up the bait bags and the, you know, the the doors, that the trap doors that wash ashore and things like that and maybe broken pieces of buoys. But uh, by and large, what we're leaving behind are the, are the, um, the buoys and the traps. Um, which you know can feel a little unsatisfying when you go out with an army of volunteers to clean a shoreline and you're boating away with a mound of trash and you look back and you still see a rainbow of buoys and 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 pots on the shore. Um, that said, there have been sort of case by case uh, examples of places where my organization and others have done uh, cleanups of fishing gear with working often in conjunction with fishermen to try to get at that stuff because I, I don't remember when we switched over from wooden traps to metal traps, but uh, that had some consequences in terms of marine debris. You know, the wooden traps would eventually bang around enough and break down into smaller pieces and, and disintegrate, and maybe there was a little bit of metal left over, but uh, with these vinyl-coated steel traps, they stick around for a long, long time. Yeah. And they just sort of get um, they get smashed and uh, and kind of bent out of shape. And by the time a lobster pot makes it ashore, 99 out of 100 are unusable. Um, so it's it seems to be, you know, to call it gear by the time it makes it ashore seems like a misnomer. It's really marine debris at that point. But there have been um, collaborative efforts to clean up some of this stuff, both on shorelines uh, as well as ghost gear work. Um, and can you define ghost gear? Ghost gear is um, is fishing gear like a trap that has uh, lost its line and its buoy, so it's just sitting at the bottom of the ocean, perhaps still catching lobsters, um, and you know eventually over time that may get um, through currents and swells and stuff, it may get uh, spit ashore somewhere on an island or on a, on the mainland. But uh, there's a lot of it in the bottom of the ocean, and we haven't been involved with ghost gear recovery directly, but I know the Gulf of Maine Lobster Foundation and the Maine Coastal Program and Ocean Conservancy and others have. Um, But we have worked with on some of the islands that are part of the trail and some of the partners uh, that we work with. We've we've been able to do some shoreline trap cleanups um, working in collaboration with Marine Patrol and with some local fishermen. Um, So one one that I'll highlight is um, in Muscungus Bay, there's a, a small four-acre privately owned island that's uh, part of our water trail that um, seems to just collect a lot of gear. And it uh, we've done two cleanups. I've been at MIDA for 10 years, and we've done two trap cleanups there and filled, um, gosh, between the two of those trap cleanups, we've probably filled four or five 40-yard roll-off containers full of 
just crushed metal traps. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff. What's a roll-off container? Oh, like a 40-yard uh, long rectangular dumpster. Wow. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at that volume, some of that metal can be recycled, which is nice. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but it takes it took collaboration with the harbor masters, with the fishermen, with Marine Patrol, with nonprofits. And, uh, yeah. And more recently, um, a, a slightly easier thing that we've been diving into recently is uh, is buoy return because unlike the traps a lot of the buoys that wash ashore are in fact reusable but it's not okay. it's not economical or efficient for lobstermen to go ashore to retrieve a single buoy um, that they may not even see from their boat um, but we see them a lot and in certain places we've been able to work with harbor masters and marine patrol to get permission on designated cleanups to bring buoys back to a drop-off spot and um, so that the the harbor master can uh, distribute them to the fishermen. Again. That's that's great. Yeah. That's that's a really neat approach. Um, I think we've got a call. Um, I think we have a call from Catherine in Appleton. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, just a second. Our, oh, I guess we lost Catherine there for a second. Um, she might pop back on. Um, but in the meantime, um, Brian, what are some of no, the... No, you didn't oh, lose me. you're back. Great. Hi, Catherine. I was about to turn down the radio. Okay. Um, this is a version on the theme of trashing the, the uh, oceans. And I applaud you young people for your passion because I'm right there with you. That's great. Um, let's not forget Fukushima, what's that, what that's doing to the Pacific and trashing it. However... There is a, um, and I'm sure you're aware of this, there is a Veterans for Peace walk um, from Ellsworth, Maine, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, put on by the um, Buddhist and monks uh, order from Japan, who specialize in peace walks all over the world. And it is to raise the awareness of the militarization of the seas the Pentagon's impacts on the ocean, sonar testing, et cetera. And we know what that's doing to our mammals and dolphins and, and um, whales. So it's another version of trashing the seas. And I just wanted to let everybody know that it's happening starting today through the 24th of October, Ellsworth to Portsmouth, all along Route 1. And I plan to be a part of it. Great. Thank you okay. so much, Catherine. You're Appreciate welcome. your call and that piece of information. And that's veteransforpeace.org. It will tell you all about it. Great. Thank you. Bye. So for anyone who wants more information, thank you so much, Catherine, for your call. That's a Veterans for Peace walk. Um, and if you want more information, veteransforpeace.org. Um, I think we have another call from Frank in Lemoyne. Frank, are you on? Yes, I am. And I guess I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't have the radio up because I was waiting for the call. But I was going to tell you the same thing. I'm oh, not great. sure what Catherine told you. Did she tell you about where we're starting and so forth and so on? She said that you guys are starting in Ellsworth and you're working your way down to Portsmouth and you'll be walking on Route 1. That's good. There was a potluck to that at 6. I've called Mary a couple of times. It's nice to get somebody from there. there. Great. And, and we're going to be in Rockland, too, so the Island Trail people could join us. But this is sponsored by Vets for Peace and and we're hoping to have quite a few people. Great. Walks every year. This year is the kind of the environmental issues of the ocean. That's great. Thanks for, for making that happen. And the website and, is veteransforpeace.org, right? Yeah, or Maine Peace Walk also. And we'll and we'll uh we'll be on the radio tomorrow, I think on that show at three some visit 
great. walking tomorrow. All right, bye-bye. Thank you so much, Frank and Catherine, for that great piece of information about different ways that our ocean is on the receiving end of all kinds of pollution from trash to noise and others. And I think that we have another call from Yo. Are you on? Good morning. Good morning. This Welcome. This is Yo in Tremont. Great. Hi, Yo. No one likes seeing trash on the beach. No. I pick up trash from the beach. Great. But visible trash is only the tip of the plastic iceberg. Even microparticles can be seen in a microscope. But eventually, every piece of plastic decays to molecular size, or nanoparticles. Nanoparticles are small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier, not just in people, but all life. So I applaud your efforts. It is impossible to overestimate the effects of nanoparticles on the biosphere. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you so much for your call, Yo. Um, we have one more call, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, um, Abby to uh, just real quick tell us biodegradable plastic. This is something we hear about. Does it really biodegrade into a form that is okay and doesn't cause the problems that Yo was just talking about? The jury is still out. Um, there's not been a lot of um, studies looking at the long-term, um, how quickly these bioplastics bio or biodegradable plastics take to break down. And many of these bioplastics are sort of rife with issues. Um, made with corn, which has a lot of uh, environmental uh, issues here in the U.S. Uh -huh. um, and also, when these bioplastics are um, manufactured, there are a lot of hazardous chemicals also added in during this process. So they might not uh, be here forever and ever, but they still have that same legacy as plastic does in terms of absorbing and release releasing toxins in the environment. Okay, okay, that's that's really good to know. So we need a little bit more time to figure out what, what are the methods to really use instead of plastic. Um, we have Tom from Blue Hill. Are you still there, Tom? Welcome I'm to here. the show. Great. Thanks a lot. Um, I am a commercial fisherman. Or Great. I work on lobster boat, and um, I wanted to just agree with you guys um, about the volume of trash that comes from lobster boats in Maine. Um, I see it firsthand every single day. And I want to ask uh, how you can communicate with lobster fishermen about this problem and make uh, them have a reason to not uh, put trash into the ocean. Um, just because a lot of the time it's the easiest way to get rid of something, uh, you just throw it overboard and your problem goes away immediately. And if there are, are any consequences uh, that will affect the lobster um, in particular from trash, and if there's really any incentive for these lobster fishermen to not uh, throw it overboard, you know, it's easy for them to do so. Great. Thank you so much, Tom, for your call. Um, it's, I was hoping that we were going to hear from a lobsterman um, because I know that there's a lot of you guys out there that are really paying attention to this issue. And before we take our next call, I know there's another one of you out there wanting to chat with us. Um, I just wanted to ask both Brian to tell us a little bit about sort of 
ideas for increasing communication with the industry about the issue and other thoughts he might have. And then um, turn real quick to Abby also for um, what are the consequences of microplastics in lobster tissue. Um, so Brian, do you have any thoughts for Tom? And thanks so much, Tom, for, for your call. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It, it's a great question and it's a dialogue that we are that, that I know my organization and some other nonprofits that um, are dealing with marine debris would love to have. Um, and actually, we'd I would I would be interested in asking you the same thing. What what the best channels are to to reach lobstermen? I mean, we've thought of um, working through the the Maine Lobstermen's Association and the Down East Lobstermen's Association just to just to have the conversation. But you know, thinking about our um, our mission is to maintain a recreational water trail, and we do a lot of work, um, as I've been explaining, around cleaning marine debris. But I'm not sure that the Maine Island Trail Association is the right organization to lead the effort on um, when it comes to sort of fishing gear and um, uh, derelict fishing gear and um, stuff tossed overboard. We'd love to be part of the conversation and at the table, um, but I, it seems like a... Uh, a solution would be better off coming from within um, the, the and, industry. And you mentioned, Brian, earlier, you mentioned at least one or two organizations that are within the industry. The main, there was uh, uh, the main... Lobstermen's Association. The main Lobstermen's yeah. Association and, the, and then another one that's actually doing cleanups already, the main... Oh, the Gulf of Maine Lobster Foundation. That's who I think, they, yeah. Yeah, yep, they're down in Kennebunk. Um, and they've done some, yeah, they've done some ghost gear cleanups in, in connection with fishermen um, or Great. collaboration with fishermen. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And um, uh, Tom, it's, it sounds like the, the more of you and your friends within the industry sort of paying attention to the issue, that's not an easy solution. But, um, but then there's the other dimension of what What's the what's the impact of microplastics within the lobsters themselves? Lobsters are, you know, our biggest marine industry. Um, uh, Abby, what kind of things are you seeing on that front? Yes, yeah, so uh, last year we started a tissue study looking at microplastics in some of our favorite Gulf of Maine um, commercial species, lobsters being one of those. And we have looked at the tamale and the innards of uh, 10, uh, we had 20 lobsters in our study, and we were finding fairly high amounts of plastics in both mm. the tamale and in the innards. And um, even if the plastic is being passed through an animal, that those plastics are definitely impacting um, the toxin load in the in the tail meat um, and other parts of the lobster. So, drawing that connection from throwing over that bit of rope that you've cut off on the boat overboard to um, sort of poisoning your livelihood um, is, can be very difficult to do on the water. But I think that the more information and the more studies that are showing plastics are getting into these this the commercial species that we rely on for our livelihood um, is really important. And Tom, I also wanted to say I've, I've worked on lobster boats as well, and the most powerful thing I felt like I could do because um, this was, you know, you see it all the time. It's so easy to put things overboard. And what I started to do was to just sh uh, show by doing. Um, I would grab things that would normally be thrown overboard, grab extra the bands that were floating around on the on the deck and um, have a little trash bag on board that I then would take off every day. And um, that actually started to um, sort of resonate um, with mm -hmm. the other crew members. So being a stern or third man, you can make a change even if you're not the captain on the boat. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, 
leading by example. And I think that we still have one more call. Um, and it, so we have Richard from Penobscot. Richard, do we still have you? Thanks yep. for waiting. Great. Um, in, uh, in the early 70s, I worked for a company doing an environmental impact uh, gathering information for a nuclear power plant in Connecticut. And one of my jobs there was to sort um, plankton samples for ichthyoplankton, uh-huh. fish larvae, and fish eggs. And at that time, in those samples, there was quite a significant number of small, round, plastic beads, which were just about the same size as the fish eggs. Hmm. So this has been going on for quite a long time. And to see that we're producing more of this stuff to go into the ocean indicates perhaps there's not much of a learning curve going on there. But anyway, I just wanted to make a comment that um, this small plastic pollution that's in the ocean has been going on for quite a long time. And it's kind of significant to me that the size of these are very close to the same size as fish eggs, which are a food source for a lot of animals. Yeah, that's a great point, Richard. Thanks so much. Okay, for... well, thank you for your program. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, so Richard was talking about, I think, the 1970s, right? So that's a while ago. Um, Abby, w- what are you seeing in terms of the sizes, so size of the fish egg? Um, so here in Maine, I actually have not encountered too many of these nurdles, and that's, I think, what Richard was talking about, these... Um, sort of the feedstock for making other um, plastic items. And uh, when you walk on the beaches out on the, on the West Coast, um, you will often see a lot of these plastic pellets mixed in with the sand along the beach um, because a lot of the plastic pellet production is now happening on the West Coast, and they're put in shipping containers and shipped to China and Asia for, to the petrochemical um, factories for melting down and making into our you know, our single-use plastics that we um, use once and then throw away. Uh, so yeah. this, the nurdle, the plas- plastics have a sort of a toxic leg- legacy every step of their life um, from when before they've been made into a plastic item that's useful. They, the nurdles and the, these pellets are spilling out on the beaches, and, yeah, they look like food source. They look like eggs, and so very easily ingested, and then they're shipped across the oceans, and more chemicals are added, and all, every step of the way is sort of um, an environmental issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for your call, Richard. Um, that's that's really great to have sort of that history um, that it's been going on for for well over forty years or, or more, really, since the beginning of plastic production. Yeah, since I think I would I would say that um, we probably are still seeing plastics from the um, once they really became more household use in the 40s and 50s. Um, okay. And so I'm, I'm sure we are still seeing plastics out in the ocean from that time, and we've um, invented new types of plastic every, every decade since, and um, uh, we are only increasing our global uh, production of plastic, over 300 million tons um, now we are producing globally. Um, so I think we have one more call from Susan, but just hang tight for just a quick second, Susan. Um, we are sharing a whole bunch of information that's really kind of um, disheartening. And so just so you guys know, before we sign off, uh, we're going to give you some information of what folks can do, how people can get involved in trying to help solve the plastic pollution problem. But before we go there, um, Susan from Gouldsboro, welcome to the program. Hi. I just wanted to talk about the um, the lobster debris Great. From, from another angle. Um, one thing, it's not an immediate uh, solution, but there's a woman who volunteers in our town and comes to the local school and talks about recycling with kids um, 
every year and one of the things she does is she always uses uh, as an example of number two plastic a bleach bottle because that's something that gets thrown overboard from lobster boats in great numbers and her express purpose is to you know give these kids who may wind up growing up to become lobstermen we're in a coastal community um, a search image for something you know just to give them the idea that this is something you can recycle instead of throwing overboard um so it's it's going to take a long time for those effects to trickle down but sometimes dealing with the next generation gives you some hope of changing um behaviors too and we take our kids out beach cleaning and they love you know they have small small hands and sharp eyes and they love picking up junk and it's something that they can do that makes them feel like they're doing something um to help the earth so um, so let's not forget there are kids coming up that we can impact too um, and hope to give them some hope that they can um, be part of the solution. That's great. Thank you so much, Susan, for for that, that comment. I know my own child who's eight years old, you know, when we're out on the islands and she picks up trash, she doesn't call it trash, she calls it her treasures. And then she create, you know, creates these sculptures with it and, you know, feels good about it because she knows she's doing the right thing and she's making art with it at the same time. So that's a, that's a great positive note as we wind down here. Um, so, so, so let's go on Susan's note, Brian. What can people do so we can help teach our kids? Um, what else can people do? How can people get involved in helping address this crazy plastics problem in our ocean? Yeah, well, I, I think first um, we we could all do with a little less plastic in our lives. You know, simple things from bringing reusable grocery bags and, and um, using a steel coffee mug instead of the uh, the quick disposable ones. Um, would help, but sort of from our perspective, um, you know, Mida's stewardship model is based on on volunteers, and uh, we're a small staff, and we look after over 160 islands along the entire coast, and uh, the only way we're able to do it is with the help of hundreds of volunteers annually. So, we would urge you guys to um, to volunteer with us with with any at any beach cleanup. Uh, as Susan said, it is it is really rewarding, and it's a great activity to do with your kids because it's um, you know you see the connection immediately when you when you come to a beach or come on an island shoreline and and it's dirty and you spend a few hours bagging it and um, and then it looks clean again. It really you know it gives you that sense of accomplishment. And um, um, I think there was a caller earlier who said it's just the tip of, of the iceberg, and that's absolutely true. But it's an important part of it as well. I mean, if we don't get it out of the system, it's just going to continue to break down further and further and turn into microplastics that will be a lot harder to clean. And uh, Brian, if people wanted to join the Maine Island Trail Association or volunteer, how would they get in touch? Sure. Uh, our website, uh, mita.org, M-I-T-A.org. Um, we're not the only group on the coast doing cleanup work. Um, there are uh, There's a week in September called uh, Maine Coast Week when there are cleanups happening all over the place. Um, I think you find information about that on the Maine Coastal Program website, but um, our cleanups take place in May and June and then in September and October. So we're, we're all done for this season, but uh, get on our email list, uh, which you can do by signing up on our webpage, and you'll find out about Infer, uh, when the next cleanups are for next year. We'd love to see you out there. Great. 
Thanks, Brian. So that's M-I-T-A dot org. Um, and Abby, we haven't even talked about the whole other microplastics work that you do. We'll have to have you on the show again another time to talk about that. Um, but tell us a little bit on the microplastic and how folks can get involved. And I'm thinking myself, I am just a big, huge consumer of fleece clothing. So that's I'm going to think twice on that front. I think just being aware of what you're using in your everyday life, um, how often you, uh, you need to wash your fleece. Um, and also there are some filters that you can put in your home washing machines. Um, I think they need to be better engineered um, because they do, uh, you know, it's shedding thousands of pieces of plastic. So you need to remember to clean it out like a, like a lint filter in a dryer. Um, so there are some steps that you can take to reduce the amount of plastic um, that you are contributing to the environment through washing your synthetic clothing. Um, I think that, uh, as Brian said, it just re refusing and re re reducing the amount of plastic that you use. We're, we are addicted to plastic. You know, more than half the plastic we use, we lose, use for less than 30 seconds, and then we throw it away. Say that again? Um, more than half the plastic we use, we use for less than 30 seconds, and then we throw it away. Wow. Wow. So um, That's sobering. Have, yeah. We haven't... We use some. We use plastics as though. Um, I mean, it's amazing material, but we just need to use it less because it's it's here. It's here to stay. Yeah, and if people wanted to learn more about the research and the work um, that you have been doing at um, the Maine uh, Marine and Environmental Research Institute, how can they get in touch? Um, they can go to our website, meriresearch.org. Um, uh, we often do we do coastal cleanups in um, September. And um, we're always uh, happy to have people involved in, in um, keeping, keeping up with our, our research. We, we are no longer doing volunteer um, work, but um, uh, we are always looking for extra helping hands, especially when it comes to picking up trash. Great, great. And as Brian said, there are many other organizations along the coast that are involved in coastal cleanups. The last thing I wanted to ask Abby is to just remind us, what, what is it that we're looking for in the ingredients of things like toothpaste and facial products and all that kind of stuff so that we know what to look for and what to avoid for the little tiny microbeads. Right. So um, when you look through the ingredients, anything that says polyethylene or polypropylene means it probably contains a microbead of some sort. So um, avoid those products as much as possible. But shortly here in Maine, by 2018, there will no longer be personal care products sold with um, microbeads in them, and by 2020, it'll be both personal care, care products and um, uh, pharmaceutical drugs will no longer have those microbeads in them. That's some great news. Um, yeah, way to go, Maine legislature. And those of you at Mary and other places who have been working hard to advocate for passage of these laws, um, we're just about out of time here. Um, it's been a great show. I've really enjoyed having our guests on today to talk about uh, marine debris or how I'm going to start talking to, about it now um, plastic pollution because it's really what it is um, so yeah we've come to the end of Coastal Conversations um, thanks to our guests thanks to Brian Markarell from the Maine Island Trail Association um, for sharing all your insights and all your great work helping clean up our shore and thanks to Abby Barrows from the Marine and Environmental Research Institute in Blue Hill for all the research that you're doing and helping folks understand a little bit more about microplastics. Thanks a bunch to all the folks who called in. We had a lot of really great calls today, lots of good insights and questions and comments. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support 
from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. Usually we're on the fourth Friday of the month. Um, if you were expecting Talk of the Towns today, you'll catch that on the fourth Friday. The host, Ron Beard, and I just needed to swap this month, but next month we'll all be back to normal. Um, you can still catch Talk of the Towns usually on the second Friday of the month. Um, our show's theme music is A Following Sea, which was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and